I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1. We're going to eventually get to James chapter 3, but we want everybody to be able to look at the book of James with us. These guys have some Bibles, so if you need one, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you that is marked at the book of James for us. You know that if we did not have the Bible to inform our thinking, then we would all naturally draw incorrect conclusions about very important matters, including matters of eternal life and death. For example, if you ask the average person who's not familiar with the Bible, if you ask that person what religion is, he'll answer in terms of the things you do. Religion means going to church. Praying, giving, reading the Bible. Religion is the spiritual churchy things you do to have a relationship with God. If you ask what sin is, it'll be the things you do that harm your relationship with God. Sin is things like murder and stealing and adultery. For most people, then, our relationship with God is a matter of doing the right religious things and avoiding doing the wrong sinful things. We naturally define spirituality in terms of the good things we do, and we define sin in terms of the bad things we do. But then along comes the Bible. Those narrow definitions of religion and sin are expanded to include much more than just what we do. And we see an example of that in verse 26 of James chapter 1. Those who consider themselves religious... And yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. New Testament scholar D. Edmund Hebert says, James applies the designation religious to an individual who carefully performs religious ceremonies and who feels satisfied that as a result, he's obedient to the the demands of the Word of God. We could accurately paraphrase that passage as, if anyone thinks he has a relationship with God because of what he does, yet is not careful with his words, and does not demonstrate compassion for the needy, and does not operate according to a biblical set of values, then he is dangerously mistaken. And even the spiritual exercises he does are meaningless. So a relationship with God is deeper than just doing the right stuff. And the remaining four chapters of the book of James flesh out these three things that were given in those two verses that we just read, the way we talk, our compassion for those in need, and our relationship to the world and its values. Chapter 2 of James deals with the second of those three, compassion for the needy. The end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, worldliness is addressed. And in chapter 3 and again in chapter 5, the way we talk is the subject. We're going to look at James chapter 3. We're going to see that the central key role in our development spiritually, in, in holiness is the way we speak the words that God has given us the ability to communicate. And so let's ask God to help us then as we look at his words, at his word today regarding this vital subject. 
Father, we thank you that we have another Lord's Day to be together as your people and to open up the word that you have given to us. You have communicated to us in your word and you have given us the ability to communicate as your image bearers. Lord, we are going to see what you have said about the awesome responsibility that we have to use that gift in the way that you intended. And so we ask for your help. Help us to be open to what you teach us and help us to be changed as a result of what we're taught. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this week and next are going to be the final messages in our series that we've been going through since the beginning of this new year titled Life in the Father's House. It's a look at what God has called the church to be and to do. And the final set of messages have all centered on, for the last few weeks, the call to relationship. In fact, you see that in the title of today's message at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. We'll be looking, going through it together. Our ability to communicate is inseparable from our call to relationship. In fact, the very word communicate comes from a Latin word which means to share or to make common. Communication assumes relationship. It takes place in the context of relationship. And it will determine the quality of life in the church. Life in the Father's house. Now the Bible speaks early and it speaks often about the key role that communication plays in our natural and in our spiritual makeup. On the occasion of the first sin of the human race, near the very beginning of your Bible, words were used toward a sinful end. When God confronted Adam about what he had done, the Bible says Adam said this, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now notice I have the word you highlighted there. To emphasize that, that Adam uses the ability to communicate that God had given to him to do what? To blame God. And throughout the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the issue of how we misuse our ability to communicate is mentioned several times. In the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, we read this. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Now notice that in talking about the depth of sinfulness that all of us suffer from, that there's a focus here on communication, on throats and on mouths and on, and on tongues. And all of those phrases are in quotation marks because they're all citing the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, passages out of it. And so this has been the issue from the very beginning with our first parents, how we communicate and how we misuse this ability that God has given to us all along up to our present day. When the prophet Isaiah was given a vision that provided a a glimpse of the majesty and the holiness of God, he saw in stark contrast to God's character, his own sinfulness. But notice the focus of Isaiah's response. He said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. God gave us the ability to communicate in words as part of his image in us. We alone among creation can communicate in words. 
Other creatures indeed communicate, but only humans engage in propositional communication. And it's a gift that has great potential for good. But now after the entrance of sin into the world through our first parents, and that sin having been passed on to each of us, there's even greater occurrence of evil with our mouths. That reality that we are sinners who use our ability to communicate in distorted ways, ways that were not intended by God, causes James in this book to warn us about how and about how often we speak. He wants us to recognize a number of things about the use of this God-given ability, but, but at the same time sin-tainted ability. I have seven of those listed in your outline. We're going to get to at least two, maybe three today. And then the other four are grayed out toward the bottom. We will deal with those next week. But I say in that outline that we must recognize the responsibility of communication. We must recognize the responsibility of communication. Verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, of course, this is not saying that there should be no teachers in the church. As a matter of fact, you would have to have a teacher to teach you that there should be no teachers. And so clearly there need to be. And we will, in fact, see that the Bible explicitly says as much. The Bible gives great weight to the role of teaching and teachers in the church. One reason this issue of teachers and their responsibility is mentioned here has to do with the fact that this book was written to professing Christians of Jewish descent. So the book is addressed in chapter 1 and verse 1 to, quote, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And in Jewish culture, in New Testament times, the teacher or the rabbi was treated in ways that caused people to desire that position. They wanted to be the rabbi. They wanted to be the teacher. One commentator says, everywhere a rabbi went, he was treated with great respect. It was actually believed that a man's duty to his rabbi exceeded his duty to his parents because his parents only brought him into the life of this world. His teacher brought him into the life of the world to come. It was actually said that if a man's parents and a man's teacher were captured by an enemy, the teacher must be ransomed first. If rabbi and parents needed help, it was a duty to help the rabbi first. It was true that a rabbi was not allowed to take money for teaching and that he was supposed to support his physical needs by working at a trade, but it was held that it was especially pious and meritorious work to take a rabbi into your house and support his ever, support him with every care you could provide. And that, as a result, meant that people desired to be teachers. They desired to be rabbis. That's why you have Jesus saying things like this to the religious leaders of his day. Everything they do is done for men to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Jesus goes on to say they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. And we see later in your New Testament examples of people who came into the church desiring positions of, of prominence. One infamous name in your New Testament is Diotrephes. And here's what the Bible says about him. Diotrephes loves to be first. The allure of position is something that attracts those who want the adulation, but very often without the work and the burden that goes with it. 
I have met people over the years who, who come into the church and kind of fancy themselves. Of course, they would never title themselves this way, but sort of fancy themselves as consultants for God. You know, I'm the teacher. I just kind of come in, do my thing, but I don't have to get my hands dirty with all of the messy stuff of church work. People who just like to be in position so that they can be where the action is. Several years ago, I had opportunity to speak at a church in Canada. And as I was talking with the pastor, he mentioned his dad and how he had grown up in a Christian home. And his dad had been a deacon for a number of years in the church that he, the son now pastors. But he said, you know, the truth of the matter is my dad's unqualified to be a deacon. He's been a deacon for all of these years. And the truth of the matter is the reason he wants to be a deacon is, quote, he just likes to know what's going on. Just as an aside, we this afternoon at our family meeting at 2.30, we're going to be voting on some men that have been nominated to be deacons. And one of the reasons that they've been nominated is because they have the humility to not seek after something, to not lust after position, but rather desire to serve God's people in humility. There should be, in fact, a genuine internal reluctance to be thrust forward. But once God makes clear his intention that he has called one then into leadership, then lead and teach and preach with all that you have, the Bible would tell us. And the command of verse 19 back in, in chapter 1 to be slow to speak requires the humility that's given in verse 21 of chapter 1. We should be reluctant to speak unless compelled because we know the dangers. And verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us of those dangers. So teachers and preachers and any of us who are in the public eye, to whatever degree, should regularly check our motivations for what it is we do. One preacher was asked, for whom do you prepare your sermons? Who's the audience for your messages? And that preacher answered very well. He said, I prepare my messages for God. For God's approval, first and foremost. We need to ask ourselves whether or not we just love to hear ourselves talk. Or rather, what we really love is to hear the truth going forward. Many years ago, I, I thought to myself, and I've applied this at times over the years, to check my own motivations. What if it was possible to just have a big screen, a, a barrier between me and the congregation, so that no one ever knew who was talking? Would you still put as much work into it? Would you still try as hard? Because of this grave responsibility, verse 1 says there is stricter judgment. Those not called, therefore, should not seek to teach, and those who teach should not seek glory. Now, you might be inclined then to tune all of this out since you have never taught in the church and maybe you have no aspiration to do so. But it's not only talking about those in official teaching positions. It certainly includes that. But in the setting in which James' readers lived, it was possible for many people to presume to get up in the congregation and to teach. And this is because of that Jewish character of the setting that I mentioned earlier. And you see that in chapter 2 and verse 2. If you'll take a look just a page back at chapter 2 and verse 2. Where it says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Now, I've pointed that verse out to you because the word, the Greek word in your New Testament that's translated with the English words, your meeting, is the word synagogue, 
We get our English word synagogue from it. So these Christians of Jewish descent would have their Christian worship and fellowship meetings, and no doubt they carried with them some of the customs of the synagogue. One of those customs was that people could stand up and speak. And you see this in the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospels, for example, we read in Luke 4, on the Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. You not only see this in the ministry of Jesus, but you see it in the ministry of the apostles, like uh, Paul and his companion Barnabas. The Bible says Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And it says that the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. So it was not only the officials in a particular location, but it was anyone who was deemed to have something to say would stand up and and talk in the Jewish culture. Church at Corinth took this to extreme, so much so that Paul, who wrote to them in 1 Corinthians in your Bible, had to correct their practice of people talking at the same time. So you had both official and unofficial teachers. We have formal and less formal forms of teaching ourselves. To some extent, those who lead our home groups that meet normally on Sunday nights, what we call community groups, engage in teaching. And of course, any of those involved in our classes, whether for children or adults, are teaching. But recognize this, friends, giving counsel over coffee is teaching too. And the Bible is not saying don't do it. In fact, we're we're invited and commanded to do it. Romans 15 says this, I am convinced that you are competent to instruct, that is, counsel one another. But be careful and recognize the gravity of opening your mouth to dispense advice. You're teaching someone else by your words. Now, why? Why is this matter of using our mouths to instruct of such importance that we need to be warned about it? Well, verse 2 gives the reason. Verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. Now, verse 2 literally begins in Greek, again, in which your New Testament was first written. It literally begins with the word for, for we all stumble in many ways. And that word for is important. It's connecting verse 2 to verse 1. Why should we be careful about this? Why should we understand that not many should presume to be teachers? For, because... We all stumble in many ways. And the word stumble is referring to sin. So you could translate this, be careful about teaching, because we all sin in many ways. And use of our words is one of the easiest ways for us to fall into sin. So be careful. Be careful about the use of your words, instructing, advising, teaching, counseling. Proverbs says this, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. So think about this, friends. What if there were many, many sins that you could commit that required no particular set of circumstances? I mean, there are sins that we can commit that require particular sets of circumstances in order to carry them out, right? I mean, take stealing, 
you're going to steal something. You've got to have the opportunity to do it. You know, there's got to be whatever it is you're wanting to steal there. You've got to have the opportunity with no one looking around and no cameras and all of that. I'm not trying to give you all ideas. Just... But there are sins that we commit that require particular circumstances in order for those to happen. But what if you had many, many sins you could commit without particular sets of circumstances being necessary? The opportunity is almost always available nearly any time and anywhere. Well, you know, we have a category of sins like that. And it's not with what we do, but it's rather with what we say, how we talk and what we talk about. The way we use our mouths affords almost limitless opportunity to sin because you don't need to be in any special place. The opportunity is always there and we're always tempted to take advantage of the opportunity. Often it's just second nature without even thinking about it. And that's why verse 2 goes on to say, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Since sin with our mouths can take place in nearly any circumstance, self-control of the tongue prepares us for nearly any circumstance. The person who can control his or her tongue is a person now who has the kind of control to face other kinds of temptations. One preacher said it this way, the tongue, because it is the instant expression of the heart, it can sin more readily and more often than any other member of the body just because of circumstances. We can't get in a position to sin in every way with your body, but you're always in a position to sin with your tongue. Because the tongue can sin so easily, because it's such a monitor of our sinfulness, If you can control the tongue, the greater, the greater sinner in your body, then by virtue of controlling the greater, you gain control over the lesser. The person who controls the tongue will also control the body with all of its other impulses. Since the tongue responds more immediately and more quickly and more easily to sin, if it were controlled, the slower responding parts would also be controlled because the means of divine grace applied to the greater are then also applied to the lesser. This is why the way we communicate, the things we say, more than the things we do, religious things or sinful things, the way we talk is the most accurate barometer of our sinful condition. Consider, a recent study determined that on average, we speak 16,000 words a day. Now, we're only a couple hours into this day. And you haven't been awake enough to do your 32,000 or yet. In fact, I can tell you're not awake enough to do that. Which means some people are in for a barrage during cafe community. It's a lot, a lot of words. About 900 words each waking hour. If you live to 75, you'll speak about 409 million words. It's no wonder that verse 5 begins this way. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Now, as you read that, you, I would guess that you interpret that the way I used to interpret that line. The tongue is a small part of the body, but the tongue makes great boasts. Now, I used to think that meant that with our tongues, one of the sinful things we do in our pride is brag and boast. Now, that's true, but that's not what this passage is saying. 
It's saying that there are great and mighty things that can be said, not with the tongue, but about the tongue. Great things like what is said in verse 2. That anyone who is never at fault in what he says is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Great boasts can indeed be made by the tongue about the tongue because control of our communication is control of our whole lives. That's how important this communication ability is. It can do these great things. It can also do greatly evil things. So the beginning of verse 5 is simply the conclusion of the truth that's at the end of verse 2. And in between you have verses 3 and 4 which give illustrations of the use of the tongue. And so I say in your outline, we need to recognize the responsibility of communication and the power of communication. The responsibility of communication and the power of communication. Verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. A powerful animal like a horse is controlled by something as small as a bit in its mouth. The horse has a mind of its own and it may want to go its own way, but the bit keeps it from doing so. The ship likewise A small part, a rudder, gives it control and direction. But for the ship, an extra element is added in verse 4. Strong winds that would blow the ship off course and perhaps blow it into danger. So there is the internal pull of the horse and the external pressure of the wind on the ship. And both are controlled by relatively small things, a bit and a rudder. So one commentary said it this way. James sees the tongue in the light of these illustrations. For he adds, so the tongue is a little member, as comparatively small in its setting as a bit and a rudder are in theirs, and boasts of great things. The boasts of the bit and rudder are not idle or hollow. They really do master the violence of the horse and of the storm. So too the tongue. It can make huge claims and it can substantiate them too. The tongue is the key factor in controlled living. We ask ourselves how we are to control the powerful forces within us that drive us into sin. And James replies by talking about something we never considered. Do we control our tongues? Are we the masters of the master key? The tongue is the key factor in consistent living. Circumstances vary. There are the pressures of adversity and the often greater pressures of prosperity. There are sudden and unexpected shocks, the blows which life administers to us. Can we hold our course? And James' marine illustration is not at all wide of the mark as a description of life with all its tides, its currents, and its storms. And once again, there's a rudder to hold the ship on course, and the tongue is that rudder. Now, it's not that the person is strong enough to control the tongue and is therefore also strong enough for every other battle. It's much deeper and more important even than that. It is rather that winning this battle is in itself a winning of all the other battles. If you win this battle with the tongue, 
then you're in position to win the other battles. Think of a switchboard in a church or in a large building. Each switch controls the lights in its own section of the church, and the person who controls the switch controls those lights. But on the board, there's also a master switch. It doesn't need any special strength to operate it. No one would say, if you're strong enough to operate that switch, then you're strong enough to operate any of them. The simple fact is that if you control the master switch, you control all the lights. You're the Lord over the switchboard. And it's in this sense that the person who controls the tongue keeps his whole body in check. And this is the great boast that the tongue can make. You know, and I said a bit earlier that in your lifetime, on average, you'll speak over 400 million words. But it's actually much, much, much more communication going on than that. Because those are the words that you just speak audibly to others. But think about the fact that the tongue is so much more than what we actually say out loud. In fact, actual speech is probably only a small percentage of the use of our communication ability. We cannot think without formulating thoughts and words. We cannot plan without describing to ourselves step by step what we intend to do. We can't imagine without painting a word picture before our inward eyes. We can't write a letter or a book without talking it through our minds onto the paper. We can't resent without fueling the fires of resentment in words addressed to ourselves. We can't feel sorry for ourselves without listening to the self-pitying voice which tells us how hard we have been and how wrong we have been done. But if our tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. And that master switch has deprived them of any power to switch on that side of our lives. It's in this way that anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. The control of the tongue is more than an evidence of spiritual maturity. The control of the tongue is a means to it. And that control of communication in our day is not just in the audible, it's not just in the mental communication that we all have to go through all the time, it's also the digital electronic now, right? Yikes. You know, I said a few years ago that Facebook really could be renamed as Heartbook. Because very often what we put on Facebook is revealing our hearts. And we've got all of these mean, means of communication that the Bible would be, is telling us be very, very, very careful with. And so we must recognize the responsibility of communication, the power of communication, and then I say in your outline, the perversity, the perversity of communication Middle of verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. <laughs> Yikes. And we all thought we were doing just fine showing up at church. 
And here the Bible says in chapter 1 and verse 26, if we don't keep a tight rein on our tongue, our religion is worthless. And now here, the tongue is set on fire by hell. It's telling us about the great potential for harm. Like a, like a fire. A forest fire that can be done by the tongue. And when you read about the influence of the tongue and its potential for destruction, it's easy for us to dismiss its application to us personally because the description just doesn't seem to apply. I mean, the whole course of one's life on fire and the source of our words is hell itself. I can't be talking about me. I can't be talking about you. And our careless words, can it? But of course it is. And those careless words we're going to see in just a bit. Jesus says we will be judged by every careless word spoken. We need to consider, friends, the many, many, even subtle ways that we use our words in harmful, deceptive, deflecting ways. I've told you a couple times over the years that I have a book called The Evasion to English Dictionary. That is, this book purports to take phrases that people speak, words that they use that are evasions, and translate them into what they really mean in English. And so here's a a couple of examples. The passive-aggressive, oh well. And you see there, the passive-aggressive never battles and therefore never loses. But they still get their dig in. So this is the passive aggressive saying just, oh well. Here's examples. No more seats? I guess I'm standing. Oh well. See, you did something wrong by not providing a seat for me. But oh well. And then we move on. Passive aggressive, oh well. Or you pick first. And then they pick first. It's not quite half, but oh well. The waitress comes back. Oh no, I asked for the dressing on the side. Oh well, no, that's okay. I'll eat it anyway. Or then another example is when (laughs) the phrase the relationship means you. So here's an example. Honey, we need to talk about the relationship. What that really means is, honey, we need to talk about you. Here's another. You know, I just don't feel like I'm getting what I want from the relationship. Again, substitute you. Even my friends can see that there are problems in the relationship. That is, even my friends can see there are problems with you. And, of course, the reason my friends can see all these problems with you is because I've told them. Or, the relationship needs a lot of work. That means you are a basket case. (laughs) And we say this kind of stuff, don't we? So much so that people can write books about it. Not saying what we really mean. Causing harm as we go. Even in a passive-aggressive sort of way. And I've counseled people over the years 
I should have kept track over the years of how many times I've heard some of these same things. A person will say to me, I had a lapse in judgment. And it's their way of minimizing what they've done. Just a lapse of judgment. You know, we just stopped by for a few drinks. Things got out of hand. Things got out of hand. Notice, some inanimate thing got out of hand. Not we sinned and we got out of hand. It's all minimizing, deflecting. And then there's the idle chatter that we engage in that often veers into complaint, talking others down, gossiping. And Jesus said, people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. So you religious? Are we spiritual? Remember the nine fruits of the Spirit? One of those is the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. Now, I would just encourage you then. We're going to continue this next week. But I would encourage you to then think about your talk and think about the way you use your tongue. And think about those places where you're tempted to use your tongue in sinful ways. In order for you to get a handle on it, one of the things you need to do is consider where you do it and with whom you do it. You know, we've all got our friends, we've all got our circle of friends, even in the church. Where do you do that? Is it at your workplace? Is it in your home? Is it? Is it with friends from church, even at church, (laughs) in the nursery, in the hallways? Where do you do it and with whom do you do it? And then use your tongue to confront it. Use your tongue to go to those people and say, the Lord has convicted me about this. We can't continue to do this. I can't continue to do this. And you can do it. Now, how do I know that you can do it? Remember, verse 2 says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Here's the good news, friends. James, who wrote this book, is the half-brother of Jesus. And James lived with somebody perfect, who always said the right word, and as a result had everything else under control. Jesus of Nazareth. And because he lived in an absolutely righteous way, as Christians, he empowers us to do that. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And we never do it perfectly, but let us not dismiss the need for us to pursue Christ's likeness, even in the use of our words, friends. We never do it perfectly. And here's the great news, that perfect life of Jesus, the one who did it perfectly, did it absolutely right, is applied to us because we belong to him. And so I can do it. I can pursue it. And we, we must. We're going to continue that next week. Let's ask the Lord to help us today and this week in the use of our words. Father, we're using our ability to communicate that came from you now to say to you that we love you, to say to you that we want to serve you, that we want to please you, And yet, Lord, we recognize the truth of what your word says. 
But there are so many ways in which we think, thoughts, form words, communicate internally and then externally. In the, with the ability that you have provided for us to reflect you back to you. But we do it in ways that distort your image. Every one of us here, Lord, myself included, all of us have this temptation and all of us have engaged in this. Oh, Lord, help your people to take this seriously. Today, this week, might we deal with and act upon the conviction that your Holy Spirit has provided. As a result, may our relationships be more profitable. May our relationships be more edifying. And may your church be built up. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.